Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Acts chapter 4. Let's start in, um, start in verse number 8 this morning. Verse number 8 and pick up where we left off last week. It says this, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man uh, stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Father, this morning you have blessed our hearts as we worshiped you through singing, through fellowship, through the time with our children. And now, Father, I ask this as you turn our attention solely upon your word this morning, that you may speak to our hearts that we may leave this place very different than the way we entered. Today, Father, do that by making very little of me and very much of you that you may be glorified in this place. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. So last week we started looking at the responses to persecution by Peter and John. Just to catch you up real fast, in case you haven't been with us, remember they have just preached in the uh, porch of Solomon, uh, this portico of Solomon to these Jewish people, 5,000 of which came to trust in Jesus Christ. And that upset a few folks, specifically those religious leaders. And so they were taken captive. They Immediately after they had, had finished this message, after they have delivered this three-hour message, as a matter of fact, if you look at the timing of it, it says they were taken into custody overnight. This persecution fell upon them. We talked about the fact that each of us are under persecution as Christians, not necessarily in the manner that they were. We're not necessarily locked up. We're not uh, threatened with beheading, but we're under persecution every day. How do I know that? Satan's constantly attacking us with trials and tribulations in our life, persecuting us for our faith, whether it be through our, our work or through our homes or even through the church sometimes, through what the government does. We're all under persecution. So looking at the response that they had to persecution should give us a response that we should have to persecution. This series, as you know, is entitled Persecution. Your response has eternal consequences. There were two Examples of a response last week that we looked at, the very first of those is they submitted to that persecution. They didn't, they didn't fight, they didn't fuss, they didn't fume, they didn't try to explain their way out, they submitted to it. Why? Because they fully trusted that God was in control of all things, that he was sovereign. And just as he had worked through the healing of the lame man, they gave him the opportunity to preach the gospel message to those who were gathered there. They understood that God was also working through this case of persecution in their lives. So they submitted to the persecution. And they knew the only way that they would get through that is if they did the second thing, and that was surrender completely to the Holy Spirit. So they surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Um, I read that in verse 8 whenever it says that Peter was filled with the Spirit. Remember, filling of the Spirit is something where we yield our life completely to the Holy Spirit. Spirit that is in full charge and control over our life. Peter and John understood that they faced death. They, they faced uh, maybe lifetime imprisonment. They faced a lot of things. 
we as Christians face a lot of things. Let me tell you, church, we can't do it in our own strength. I think you realize that. There's so many things that come our way that we cannot stand up to in our own power, but there is a power that is within us and available to us that will help us through that at God's promise, and that is the promise of this Holy Spirit. We saw it come upon them in the first of Acts whenever they were gathered together as instructed by Jesus and said, wait for something special, and that special thing was the filling of the Holy Spirit. Each of you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior have residing within you the Holy Spirit. But the problem isn't, do you have the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? There is a world of difference in that. There is a world of difference in that. And these guys surrendered their life saying, hey, if I truly believe that God's sovereign and has me in this persecution, then I surely am going to trust in Him completely. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to surrender to the Holy Spirit in, in my life. So that was the second thing. The third thing that they did, and we'll look at this morning, this is new to us. Today we're going to start with the fact that they seized the opportunity. They seized the opportunity. So they'd submitted this persecution, they'd surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and now they seized the opportunity. Look at Acts 4, 7. <clears throat> and when they had set them in the midst, they asked them a question. This question by what power or by what name have you done this? What an awesome question. God had preordained that they would have the opportunity to proclaim to the Sanhedrin this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Look at the question they asked. By what power and by what name? Don't you wish all of your gospel sharing opportunities started off with a question so good? See, this question that they asked just set up what was about to happen. Do you think in their wildest imagination, in the wildest imagination of Peter and John or any of the other believers, that, that they would have believed that they would have had the opportunity, that they would have had the opportunity to speak to the leaders of that religious community there about Jesus? Do you think they had gathered somewhere in a quarter and said, let's figure out a way to get to Sanhedrin in one room and let's preach the gospel to them? How, how would they have ever got them to sit and listen to the gospel? How would they have ever earned the right to speak the name of Jesus in the presence of these leaders, these religious leaders? See, God had already worked it all out. He had done it through the persecution that the Sanhedrin were going to bring upon Peter and John. They did not have to find a way to get them in one place. They, they did not have to overcome the hatred that these religious leaders had for them. They did not have to come up with a, a program or, or an event to, to get them to gather into this place and, and be happy to be there. All they had to do was be submissive to God's plan and surrender their lives to the Holy Spirit. And God did the rest. God did the rest. See, the opportunity to share the gospel message came when they were asked that question. And that's not very different than the way opportunity comes for us today. Think about it. I don't know if you realize it or not, but uh, the world today finds Christians a little strange. Have you noticed? They, they call us things like narrow-minded or, or intolerant, or they think we have this exclusive club that meets on Sunday mornings and you have to be invited in. And, and they call us prejudiced or racist or, or arrogant or, or ignorant when we, when we stand on the truth of the, the Bible. And, and they, they don't quite know how to take us sometimes. <laughs> they really don't. I, they ask themselves, I'm sure, how can we respond in strength when tragedy comes our way? When things fall apart around us, how, 
How does a Christian stand without also falling apart like the world does? How can we show love to someone when they show hatred towards us? You know, we don't recognize it sometimes because we're among our Christian brothers so much. But take off your Christian gown for a minute and step outside the box. Look at how the world looks at us. You think about it when we're persecuted and we return love for that. Is that not baffling? Is something not wrong with that picture according to the world standards? And then they look when tragedy comes and how can, how can Christians give of, of themselves to people we don't even know when they're having difficult times? When tragedy comes in our area, who do they call first? It ain't Ghostbusters. <laughs> they call the Christians. They would never set foot in one of our churches. Yet when tragedy hits, they look around for the most solid foundation they can find. And guess where they find it? In Jesus' people. In Jesus' people. Very often through the, the, uh, the disdain and the hatred that they show towards us, they're, they're really asking a question of us. Even when they, when they treat us like they do, they're, they're really asking a question about us. And what's the question? What gives you the hope? What puts a smile on your face? What keeps you from falling apart? What, what is your hope? <laughs> you see, they're, they're setting up for us just like the Sanhedrin did when God set it up for Peter and John. And it's in those moments of persecution that our response has eternal consequences. Not that our eternity is not already set in stone if we know Jesus is Lord and Savior. But the eternal consequences is for that person sitting in front of you asking the question. You see, and I think that's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, I believe it is, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with meekness and in fear. See, Peter reminds us to always be ready to give a defense of our hope and our hope rests in Jesus Christ and what he has done and that God has raised him from the dead. It's the same hope that Peter and John had right here in this passage. And we see this in how he addresses the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He starts in meekness. Not in confrontation. He could have started by asking, Why are you asking me what power we did this in? Let me ask you a question, Sanhedrin. By, by what power, by what authority do you have to arrest us? He could, have, he could have immediately gone on the defensive. He could have immediately been angry and mad. But instead, he showed them respect. He showed them respect because of the office that they held, the respect that they had in the community. He showed them respect. He acknowledged that position that they had in the community. He knew that the point was not to chastise them, not to chastise them for their actions against him and John, but he was there to show them their sin against God. See, it wasn't anything to do with what they had done to Peter and John or even the lame man. What it was all about was their sin against an almighty God. See, often we jump to our own defense when we're persecuted, when we're challenged, when trials come, when things come, we jump to our own defense when all God wants is for us to defend Him. All God wants is us to be His mouthpiece. And here's where we see Peter defending God. 
He then answers her question. He answers her question by reminding them of the irrefutable evidence they had witnessed. And in verse 9, it says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? He reminds them that this lame man, that they now have standing with them in this court of the Sanhedrin, he reminds them that this lame man, just hours probably ago, couldn't stand. I find it interesting. It just hit me. They gather for prayer at 3. They were arrested somewhere in the 6 o'clock hour because it was evening. They couldn't do the trial. So there was a three-hour worship service. And if you remember what it told us about that worship service, it said that Peter and John and the lame man stood before the crowd to preach the message. If you've never put weight on your legs for 40 years because you're lame, wouldn't it be an amazing thing to be able to stand for three hours and then turn around and stand before the Sanhedrin the next day? So he reminds them of this lame man they now see standing has been healed. And that it was not done by some bad deed. It wasn't a bad thing that he was healed. It was obviously a good thing that he was healed. And in that, he also reminds them what they already believe about God is that the only one that can heal is God. You see the corner he backs them into? They want to persecute him for preaching about this Jesus, yet before them stands the evidence of the power of God standing in their midst, which has opened the opportunity to preach that gospel message about the power. And he says to them then in, in verse 10, <coughs> Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by his name, this man stands here before you whole. See, they ask the question, by what power and by what name? The answer was the power of God and the name of Jesus Christ. To make them understand the importance, he says, whom you crucified. He reminds them that there was a time that they rejected the man whose name was responsible for the healing of this lame man that they now stared at. He puts the glory where it belongs on Jesus Christ and he makes sure they know who this Jesus is. They say he's Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what is told to us in the gospel messages. When people responded to this place that Jesus came from, it's a place that nothing good comes from. It's a place that no king or religious leader would ever be selected from. It's a place that really is the armpit of society in that particular area. So he says it's this Jesus that comes from this place called Nazareth. He reminds them then that it's also the same guy that you put on a cross and killed. You rejected. See, he doesn't let them skate on their sin. He doesn't, he doesn't go around the issue to make it appetizing and, and appealing to them. He jumps straight to the fact that it's Jesus in Jesus' name and you killed him. See, it's, it's no different than us. The guilt of of Christ's death should be placed squarely upon our shoulders for our sin that placed him there. See, it, it, it wasn't somebody else that caused Jesus to crawl upon a cross. It was me. It was you. You know, yes, the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the, the Romans, they, they may have been the one to drive the nails and to put the cross together. But there'd have been no need had we not been sinners. And he throws that weight squarely on their shoulders and squarely on our shoulders. The death of Jesus Christ was 
our responsibility because of our sin. He also reminds them that this, this man from Nazareth, whom they had no regards for, this, this man who they thought was from the worst of places, this man who they would never, ever think would be sent from God, that just as the lame man was standing before them healed, this Jesus was walking around alive. He had been raised from the dead. They made a connection between what could physically be seen with their eyes and the healing of the lame man to the life of this man named Jesus. They made this connection. And then he makes the connection to what they could not deny. That the man who had been made whole and was formerly lame was standing before them well. And all they had to do to believe that was to lay their eyes on him and look at him. As they stood there, the evidence of the power in the name of Jesus Christ was standing there with them. And then Peter takes it one step further. He knew that they held to these precious books of the, of the law and, and that they held to the, the prophets and that they held to the Psalms and, and they were so entwined with those and had memorized those and, and held them so dear to their heart with this religious piety, so to speak. And he knew that they, they did not believe that this Jesus was the Messiah. And he, he also knew that they could never believe that the Messiah would come and be killed. They, they, they could not make those connections in their mind. So he does something amazing. He does what we should do whenever we spread the gospel, whenever we speak about Jesus. We should do what these guys did. They turned to the word. They turned to the place that these guys would have held dear to. And you see it there in verse 11. In verse 11, they turn to what is actually quoted from Psalm 118.22, and it says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief corner stone. He gets the opportunity to speak of this Jesus, to speak of the fact that he's the Messiah, to speak of the fact that he's been risen from the dead, and now he connects it to what he knew that they did believe. And that was the word that they held in their hand, these, these books of the law and the, the books of Psalms. And he reached back into that psalm and he, he indicts them even further when he writes and when he reads this psalm to them, when he quotes what he knew to be true from the psalm, he indicts them even further. He says that the stone used for the cornerstone of the temple had already been rejected by those that were in charge and wanted to lead the building of that godly temple. It had been thrown to the side. He said, yet even though you rejected that stone, God picked it up and used it. God picked it up and not only used it, he made it the cornerstone. If you know anything about construction, how you start a building is how you finish a building. Whenever they go out and they lay out a building and a new construction, you'll notice one thing. They start by setting up the corners to make sure that the foundation is square. You know, if you start off crooked, you finish crooked. See, the same thing was construction in their days. As a matter of fact, we got the opportunity when we were in Israel to see it. Stones have been found from the original construction that were in excess of 38 feet long. One stone, 38 feet long. I don't know how wide it was because it was inserted into the wall underground, but you could see this stone and it was perfectly square. Set in this building. It set the construction for the building. Yet there were also other stones. There were other stones outside of that construction area that were just scattered. Those were the stones that had been rejected by the builders. 
that were not square. They were not level. They were not stones that would set the foundation squarely and give them a good start. The builders knew that to, to use those stones would set the building at odds to itself. It would not be the finish that they desired. So they tossed them to the side. And that's exactly what these leaders had done with Jesus. That's the point he's making. See, he did not fit the specifications that they had for the construction of what they desired, for the foundation that they wanted their faith to be set upon. See, they wanted something different. They wanted a different cornerstone so that their faith would turn out in a different way. They desired something for themselves, not that which the builder desired. But Peter tells them that God had another plan. Peter says, God's got another plan. No matter the desire that they had, God had something different already worked out. When it came to being in right relationship with him, with God, man did not get to decide what the start was, nor what the finish is. Only God could do that. How do we know that? He says there in that 12th verse, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter tells them that salvation starts and is perfected by the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other man-made system that will get you there. There's no other religious activity that can save you. There is no other person other than Jesus that can save you. There is only one way, one truth, one life, and he has a name. And the name is Jesus Christ. The most powerful name ever mentioned. The power of God is in that name of Jesus Christ. And by submitting to the persecution, by surrendering to the Holy Spirit, Peter had been able to seize the opportunity to preach the name of Jesus Christ to the Sanhedrin. Think about it for a minute. The very ones who led the revolt against Jesus were brought together in their hatred. God used their hatred for the message to put them in a room to have to hear the message. Never think that persecution comes without a reason. Never think that God's not there. Never think that God's not present. God used the persecution in their lives to seize the opportunity to spread the gospel. The fourth thing that they did in response to that persecution is they stood in obedience. Look at verse number 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin could not believe that these uneducated, untrained men could speak with such boldness about this man named Jesus. They could not believe that they would come into their court and stand with such boldness about this man, Jesus. They were convicted by the words that Peter spoke to them concerning their part in the death of Jesus. They had, they'd all witnessed the events of those past days. And they could not deny the truth that Peter spoke. They, they could not deny that the lame man had been healed. For some, they probably had even possibly seen the risen Jesus. They, they could not deny. There was no way they could set aside what had happened. They, they could not deny that there were thousands now. Thousands who had come to believe in this man, Jesus. 
There was no way they could deny it. And that, that put them in a dilemma. It tells us in verse 14 and 15, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What were they going to say? It says, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. See, this message of the gospel brought them to a crossroad. This message of the gospel brought them to this point in their life that they had to do something. There was a response from them that had to be given. They'd recognize there was no denying the healing of the lame man. They'd recognize that. They also recognized that, that what they did next could cause the thousands that came to believe in Jesus Christ to revolt against them. So, so they dismissed Peter, John, and the former lame man and they wanted to sit and decide what it was that they could do. They, they wanted to sit behind the scenes and plot that which, which they would do next. So it says in verse 16, it says, saying, what shall we do with these men? See, they, they suddenly said, we brought them in here. Boy, we brought them in here to really lay it on them, but what are we going to do with them now? What are we going to do? It says, for indeed... That a notable miracle has been done through them is evident. And it's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And even we cannot deny it. I said, what are we going to do? The, the evidence was standing before us. Everybody's seen it. But it says in verse 17, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Speak to no man in this name. What could they do that would punish these men so much that it would make them stop preaching in this name? They knew they could not deny the miracle. That was evident. They could see him. So what are they going to do? We will tell them then that they can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. Notice it said, it did not say they could no longer heal. It did. Didn't say they couldn't go around healing people. It just says you can't tell anybody how they're healed. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there are a lot within the body of the church today that want to talk about all the wonderful things that God has done, but tell nobody about the man who's responsible, and his name is Jesus. There are many who stand in pulpits today and preach a message that tickles the ears of those who listen, but never preach the conviction of sin in their life that makes their life right with God through a man named Jesus. I've had many say we no longer preach enough the fact that there is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained. You see, they were trying to decide, what can we do? And they said, I know how we can stop this movement right in its tracks. I know how we can put a halt to this. I know how we can pull the parking brake on this whole thing. The only way that we can stop it and save face in this whole thing is to tell them they can no longer preach the name of Jesus. And isn't that what we're seeing happening in our world today? Ten Commandments are being removed from public buildings. Crosses are being taken down because they're offensive. The name of God's being removed from our money and our pledge. Prayer can no longer be done in school or in any of the many public meetings that go on. What are they trying to do? They're trying to keep that name of Jesus, the name of Jesus from being spread. 
the devil today is doing what he tried to do at the inception of the church that we read about in Acts, and that's to stop the use of the name of Jesus. He does not want you to be able to speak the name above all names, the name by which you must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. You know, the Bible tells us that one day, just the very mention of his name, that every knee is going to bow before him and every tongue is going to confess that he is who he said he was and who he's always been. He is king. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. The devil would do anything possible to keep that name from being spoken. Look at verse 18. It says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. They said, Stop! Don't speak the name. And they were commanded not to speak it. Then it goes on to say in verse 19, But Peter and John answered to them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot speak but the things which we have seen and heard. In that statement, we see their obedience. But their obedience is not to man. It is to God. Their obedience is to God. Since the Sanhedrin were the judges, they just looked at them and said, Hey, you're judging. You've set yourself together as the judge. How about judge this for me? Should we listen to you? Or should we listen to God? What a great question. Here sat the leaders of the religious community that talked about this God, that, that read scriptures about this God and who he was, and now they look at him and said, we hear you, we hear what you're telling us, but should we listen to you, or should we listen to this God? This God that you talk about. This is where the rubber meets the road for Christians. This is where the shoe leather comes out. This is where your faith gets tested. <laughs> and this is where your faith must rise to the surface. Even within our churches, our communities, all around us today, we're, we're being told things that we must accept. We're being said we must accept it. It doesn't matter what your faith is, this is the way it's going to be. So let me ask you, when you're told that we must perform a same-sex marriage in this church, how are you going to respond? See, when we're told we must accept all religions as equal and all religions as a way to the same God. How are you going to respond? See, when we're one day threatened with arrest for standing on what we believe and not doing what the government says, how are you going to respond? You see, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's where Peter and John found themselves. You see, as Christians today is upon us for many of these things. The decisions have to be made now before we're approached with the problem. Where are you going to stand? See, make no mistakes. Our, our response to those things when they come our way have eternal consequences. You may be securing your salvation because you know Jesus Christ, but that person that's telling you that you can't stand on, on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way does not know you're Jesus. So your answer to them in response that all religions point the same way has an eternal consequence, and it's for the person that's saying always point, always point to God. You see, there is an eternal consequence to your response to 
that persecution of your faith. You see, look at how Peter responded to them in verse 20. He says, we cannot, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Do you so believe the Bible and what it says that you're willing to stand in obedience in the face of persecution and say, I have no option. I have no option but to speak that which I know to be true. You see, when you face persecution, you have to stand on your foundation, the cornerstone, that stone that was put in place for the building of your faith. And that's the Word of God. You see, their standard obedience put the Sanhedrin in a very precarious place. It says in verse 21 and 22, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. Since they all glorified God for what had been done, for the man was over 40 years old on whom their miracle of healing had been performed. You see, they put them in a very precarious situation. All they could do was threaten them and let them go because they feared the people, they feared the response, and because they could not deny the fact that there was a 40-year-old man who had been lame for 40 years that now stood before them. There was no denying what God had done. They, they found themselves face-to-face with the reality With this reality that God must have healed the lame man because that's the only one that they believed could heal. And if in fact that were true, then this Jesus very well could be the Messiah. See, they found themselves face to face not only with the truth of the healing, but the truth that this man that they had killed was the Messiah. You see, in the face of persecution... They submitted to it. They surrendered to the Holy Spirit. They seized that opportunity. They stood in obedience, and they also sought fellowship. You'll notice in that 23rd verse it says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They sought fellowship. Next week we'll talk about that fellowship and what followed it. But there's a lot to be said about the fellowship of the body of Christ in our response to persecution. You know, this world is a difficult place when you're in mass. It's an awful difficult place when you're all alone. We all face persecution. We know that we do because the Bible says that we do. The Bible says all those who are willing to give their life and the service, the love of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Jesus himself says, if they hate you, don't worry about it because they hated me first. In the Bible, he tells those that want to follow him, yes, follow me, but don't take time to go bury the dead. Let them handle their own. Don't worry about plowing the road. Leave it where it sits. Don't worry about going and saying goodbye. Follow me because life's going to be tough. Life as a Christian has never been and never will be and was never made out to be a life of a bed of roses. We live in a world that is under the control of Satan, and Satan would do anything in the world to stop your witness about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Understand this, Satan can't take away your salvation. No one, no one can do that. God saved you, God keeps you. But you know what Satan can do? He can bring enough persecution, enough trial and tribulation in your life that your Christian walk makes no difference to anyone else. You see, persecution is not to make you lose your faith. 
persecution should be to build your faith that the world may see your Jesus. How will you respond? When persecution comes your way, will you submit to it, trusting that it is God's will in your life for that season? Will you surrender everything that you are to the Holy Spirit and His power in that day? Will you do that? Will you seize the opportunity that God lays before you to stand boldly and preach the name of Jesus and that power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Will you do that? Will you stand in obedience to God in that moment in your life? If not, maybe this morning you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe there's never been a time in your life that you've come to even know Him and trust Him. Maybe you've been trusting in your church attendance or your good life or your good deeds or your good works. No, there's only one way. There's only one way. His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You must put all of your faith in Him for your eternity, for your salvation. Maybe this morning God's spoken to your heart. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon. Maybe today's the day that you start your walk through persecution by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior.